Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 2. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, church, and those online, those who will watch this later, hello to you as well. I know uh, Terry's been thanking me every week that I gave her short, nice verses. So Larry, I'm sorry, when you come back next year, you're going to have the real long ones with all the names in them, so you just get ready for that. But, uh, so yeah, you're welcome, you're welcome. I got your back, there you go. So, well, as we're here today, uh, we are continuing a sermon series. That's right, and this is a little different maybe than many of our sermon series, but uh, we're, we're spending a lot of time doing a teaching sermon, uh, sermon series, that is. And what I mean by that is you may not come away from today and say, oh my gosh, I need to go do this X, Y, Z. But sometimes it's really great to hear the, some of the stories of the early church and especially uh, come to grips with say, maybe some of the things that the early church had to come to grips with to understand how we now today may also live out faithful lives like the early church decided. Now... Uh, we're taking you back in time here today. So we're talking about basically when you think of Jesus, you know, Jesus came and rose again, and then eventually he ascended to heaven, left the disciples. They were kind of like the first generation Jesus followers, if you will, right? And so most of those people by this point, you know, at this point, those people have passed on, they've died and gone on to glory land, so to speak. The second generation has come. They've taken up the torch, if you will, keep spreading the gospel throughout the world. And then uh, we're kind of towards the end of their life or into even the third generation kind of really taking the torch going on. We're talking about 125, 150 AD, around those days that we're going to go back to and look at. But let's first, let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so we're back at this point in history, and there's this interesting thing, as we talked about last week, that comes across, is that the world and as the gospel spread out through the world, it got adapted in sort of different cultures and different places. And what I mean by that is some of the times it was adapted in kind of nominal ways. For instance, what attire does the clergy wear? Well, it doesn't really matter that much to the gospel message, right? What, wear whatever, right? It doesn't matter. Or things like, you know, sometimes when you want to honor a person, in some cultures you stand to honor them, in some cultures you sit to honor them, right? And so they were purposely doing honoring things, even though they may have done it differently and things like that. So there was different adaptions that happened, but some of them were blatant changes to the actual gospel itself. And so the early church was coming across and hearing these things, and they said, wait a minute, that is not the message that we heard. And so we'll talk a little bit more about those in a minute, as we mentioned them last week too. But the church comes up with some responses to that. And actually, this is the time frame, about 125, 150 AD, around there, where the church comes up with a few different things to really talk about what it means to be the church. The first thing that they did, as we'll talk about actually in the coming weeks, is canon. They actually made the actual New Testament. They got all the letters together and, and had them all as a unified voice to say, hey, these are the story that we've heard. We want to admonish these as the books and the letters that have been written that all churches should uh, admonish. The second thing they did was they wrote the creeds, if you will, really kind of hashed them out, if you will, and, and especially the Apostles' Creed. They sat together and said, this is what the message is that we have received. And, of course, we said that here in our church here today, like the Apostles' Creed. And then the next thing that well, they did, the third thing that they did, was they started really looking at this idea of what it means to be apostolic. And we'll talk about that next week uh, in, in further detail. But 
What I want to point out, and one of the things I've been thinking about in these days, is just the creeds of the church, especially that of the Apostles' Creed, and specifically that line of what the church is supposed to be. I've been doing a lot of thinking about that, right? We talked last week that there are some four different things the early church, uh, like fathers and mothers, everybody that was there, they said, hey, this is what the church has to be, right? And they defined it with four adjectives that are actually pretty in-depth. And the first one was, you know, as you see it in the, in the uh, Apostles' Creed, like we said it today, there's one, right? The next one is holy. The next one is Catholic. And then uh, apostolic is the fourth one. Now, if you're paying attention here this, this last week, in the Nicene Creed, it has all four of those when you get to that line about the church. Now, you'll notice probably as your Apostles' Creed that we said here today, there's only three, and the apostolic one's not there. But I would point out to you that it's the Apostles' Creed. So it was kind of redundant to say it right there, right? So even though they would understand it, it is certainly one of the four that even the early church, when they had the Apostles' Creed and were saying it, that they surely would have said as well. And so as you look at this, these ideas of all four are really needed. And we're going to talk about the idea of holy here today. Now, when you hear the word holy, what the church is supposed to be, it has to be one, and it has to be holy. And holy means pretty much exactly what you think it means, right? And, and exactly what you're thinking right now is that holy means this idea, and, and what it means in Scripture is to, to be set apart, right? That it's not just of this world in a sense, that it's actually set apart to be holy and to be uniquely gifted, or not uniquely gifted, but uniquely focused on God. And in fact, to be set apart, when you think about how God sets things apart, he does a few different things when he sets things apart. The first thing he does is he wants those things that are set apart to share the qualities that he has. So the things that are holy actually become godlike. So what we're called to be as a church is not only holy in the sense that we're set apart, but also to express the very essence and qualities of God's self to this world. In some sense, to be holy means that we're ambassadors, if you will, to this world, representing God and what God wants us to do, and then very actual quality and character of God to this world. And so one of the core things to understand, of course, in holiness is this idea is that the church is not called to act like the world. The church is called to act like God for the world and to help transform the world itself. And it's an act of obedience to be fully devoted to God, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. That's what it means to be holy. And the church has this focus that it pursues Holiness. Now, I know when we hear, hear that word holy, you know, when I was growing up, holy basically meant to be that kind of person that was stuck in the mud, if you will, right? right? And it meant to be that person that really just doesn't have any fun or anything like that, but that's not what the word holy means. Holy means a bunch of wonderful, beautiful things that bring life and love and happiness and joy into people's life, but specifically to bring those godlike things, godlike qualities, if you will, into someone's life. Now, when you look at Scripture, it's interesting, because we read just from Leviticus in 19, but it was that, that word, right? I want to point this out to you, because there's another aspect of holy that's worth talking about here today, and that is this. It says in there, in Leviticus, and it says it actually a number of times, not just the Scripture that we said, but it says, be holy as I am holy. And this is God talking to God's people. So he's saying, hey, Jewish, you know, all the, all the Israelites at the time, hey, you're not going to be like the other nations. You're not going to be like them at all. You are going to be holy, set apart, and you're going to be holy like I'm holy. And in fact, I'm telling you within the book of Leviticus how to be holy and how to pursue holiness and how I want you to pursue these things, right? And so that's exactly what it said. And it's interesting how in the New Testament this is picked up, especially in 1 Peter. Or 1 Peter in uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 16, 
it actually says those words. He reminds the people as he's, as Peter's, you know, uh, in launching the church, he says, hey, just a reminder, just in scripture, it says, be holy as I am holy. But it's interesting to look at the verse right before that, right before that quotation. It says this in 1 Peter 1.15, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy, and you think it would stop there, then he goes on to say, in all you do. Right? And what Peter is trying to point out to the early church there and what he's pointing out as he writes this letter is that to be holy is not just a matter of being us, you know, holy with God and right in heart and spirit and go living up on a mountain, right? And, and you know, being the, 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 the guru, if you will, up on the mountain with all the goats and everybody comes and gets to us and learns what it means to have peace. No, no, no. To be holy is actually an active thing. It actually is not just about the heart and the self, but it's about holy action. It's about actually doing the good work and actually reaching out and doing those good things. And it's interesting how much the early church really wanted people to understand this. They wanted to understand that, hey, to live faithfully, to have the right action, there are some right beliefs that you have to have. And so they really, really worked hard at this time in history to say those three things as they kind of worked out. They said, hey, these are the ideas. We need to get together the canon. We need to get together some creeds, and we need to get together with this idea of what it means to be an apostolic church. Now, it's interesting looking back on my life as a pastor. Uh, when I felt the call to ministry, uh, I remember that uh, there was a whole long process there, but one of the processes I had to go through was choosing what seminary I'd go to, right? So I'm about to graduate college, and it's kind of time to decide what I'm going to do with my life in the sense of how am I going to pursue this calling in my life. And so, of course, uh, the next thing was in the Methodist Church is you go to seminary, you have to get a master's degree in divinity. And so I would go and I would visit different seminaries. And so, of course, being in Atlanta, I went to, there's one in Atlanta. It's called, it's at Emory, as you guys know it, but a lot of people know this. The actual theology, theological school as part of Emory is called Canlon. And so I went and I did my little, you do, what you do is you go do just like you do for college. You kind of go and you visit, and, you know, you go see different things. And part of what we had to do was go on that visitation day. We got to go and sit in a class and get to, get to just sit in and just hear the class and what they were saying. And so I chose, you know, I got some options, but I chose, the New Testament intro class, because that sounded like, you know, nice, fun thing to go do. So I went to this New Testament intro class at Candler, and, um, and I'll say, I'm going to say the teacher. Now, I don't mean that to belittle. I'm just saying, like, it wasn't an actual professor on staff. It was actually someone who's in the master's or even doctoral program that's going through and becoming a professor, but is still in that process, if you will. So the teacher was there, and the teacher's, of course, explaining, or they're specifically talking about uh, the, the John books of the Bible. What I mean by that is the, the writer of the, the Apostle John, right, the disciple John, is known or traditionally thought of as writing a number of the books of the New Testament, specifically the Gospel of John. And then, <laughs> secondly, the letter of 1 John. This is really complicated, guys. Letter of 2 John, right? Letter of 3 John, and then finally Revelation, right? And that's kind of been the traditional understanding as far as, you know, that either he or someone on his behalf was writing this. Uh, these letters, and it was kind of come from his tradition, if you will. And so we were talking about that, and of course, and what you do in, in seminary is you don't actually kind of focus on what the words say. When you go to seminary, you learn about all these, you know, really high, mighty academic things, right? And so you, you basically try to do like surgery on scripture. <laughs> That's the way I describe it. You go through all these, what they call criticism, and you go, well, that sounds bad. It's kind of a funny word, but they don't mean like critiquing it as in like you're telling this is wrong, this is wrong. They just mean like you're going through and you're doing all these really kind of high level kind of uh, ideas as far as trying to figure out who wrote it, when did they write it, who did they write it to, and what were they writing and why was the purpose of this writing. 
Now, in some sense, you can get that from the plain language, but what happens in seminary and, and kind of academic circles is you don't just take it at face value of what it says. You have to kind of do your research and really kind of question everything. You know, it's kind of this idea of scientific questioning everything, same idea. And so anyways, we were talking about, or he, I say we, he was talking about, the teacher that is, about how, you know, from his point of view that it wasn't the same writer and that this was, some of these were written much later date than the other ones and that there were all these different themes that were found in there and on and on and on. And at some point, one of the students raises a question and, and uh, I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, they're interrupting the, the teacher, but it's what you do at apparently a seminary. You just kind of interrupt them in the middle of their lecture. And, uh, and so, you know, the TA uh, teacher assistant there calls out and asks the, the teacher, uh, student, and the student goes, I just want to say something. And we're all like, ooh, okay. That's an interesting way to lead that. <laughs> and I can't, I'll have to paraphrase exactly what they said, but it was something along the lines of this in my memory was, how dare the writer of 1 John and 2 John exclude people? And all just kind of, most people in the room kind of look at each other like, what? This is totally off topic, right? And anyways, and if you read first the letter of First John, there's a moment where he says, watch out for the Antichrist, the people who deny Jesus. Watch out for them and have no part in them. And then the letter of Second John, he actually goes on further, and in the letter of Second John, the writer actually says, hey, there are people coming that deny that Jesus came in the flesh. In other words, he was human, right? They deny that he's God, but he's not human at all. And so he says, don't even welcome them, right, in the book. And the person that day and the student that day said, hey, that is not acceptable, right? That's closed-mindedness. How dare we have the scripture, and how in the world can this be anything that we want to be part of what we you know, should teach and stuff like that? Now, it's important to know, at, at seminary, like, it's not just United Methodists that go there. There's actually people from all other, not only faiths, but religions that go to seminary to learn different things. And not only that, but it's, uh, if you just go and study like at Emory religion classes, sometimes you'll go to the seminary classes and actually like, you know, study some of those too. So, you know, it's a whole gambit of people that come into this class, not just people trying to become pastors. But nonetheless, I remember thinking to myself, closed-mindedness, and I remember thinking, was it? Like, were there things that were so important that they couldn't be lost, right? And John says, here's a line. This line cannot be crossed, right? And is that closed-mindedness, or is it actually the opposite? Is it actually the caring thing to do? And I thought about this idea that, you know, if John had just said in those days, well, I know there's some people that deny Jesus as Christ. Eh, it's okay. <laughs> or if he had said things like, oh, I know it's okay that some people deny that Jesus came in the flesh. That's okay. You know, what would have happened? And it's interesting to look at history and to say what would have happened because it's an unanswerable question. However, I think you can make a strong case for a couple things that I would say here today. The first I want to go back and remind you what the sayings and what the adaptations of Christianity were. One was Gnosticism. It starts with a G. I know that's kind of weird, but it starts with a G and it's Gnosticism. And basically what that was, it was the idea that this world, it starts with this world is evil, right? Material things are evil. They're not supposed to exist in the first place. And so we're stuck in this kind of evil realm and we need to be kind of enlightened and we need like a secret password, if you will, to get to the next level of spirituality and to be freed from this tyranny of this world. And so basically what they did was they just took that, that existed even before Jesus was even born, and they basically took that understanding and said, okay, well, we'll just simply put Jesus in as the person who comes and gives us the secret password. And that's exactly what it was. It was basically Jesus came to this earth. Forget all the things you read in scripture. None of that was really important. What he did do is give us secret knowledge that leads on to something else. Now when I think about that, I think about the denial 
of the world being good, right? And you remember in Scripture what it clearly says in Genesis when God created the world. He called it what? Remember, church? Okay, well, let's try it again. There's, there's a word I'm looking for. It starts with a G, ends with an Ud. Ready? What did he say, church? He looked at the world. He called it. In other words, he didn't just look at the spiritual realm and say it was good. He looked at the very nature of physical things, right? That this world is good. Flowers are inherently good, right? Even though raccoons are garbage dumpster people, like or garbage dumpster animals, they are inherently good by being part of God's creation. And I don't know why mosquitoes are good. Heaven help me, right? But somehow they're part of creation and good, right? Like there's some goodness to them, right? Every single thing matters on this earth. It matters whether people go hungry or not. It matters whether people have opportunities in life or not. It matters all those things. And Gnosticism would pretty much go, eh, this is all a mistake anyways. If you play that out and you think about some of the implications of that, in many ways our world we've used and abused as creation and used it for any whim that we would have. And sometimes Christians have been guilty of this too because we say in Revelation, God's going to create it new, so why bother, you know, why not mess up the living room if it's all, if mom's going to come through and clean it, right? But it's kind of that idea. But yeah, my wife's like, my wife's like, uh-uh, that's what we deal with this. This is, this is, we have five-year-old twins for those that don't know, and so we deal with this on a daily basis. But there is this idea when God created the world, not only did he call it good, but remember he created two people, Adam and Eve, right? And what was their job, right? Do you remember? They were to have, in the scripture, a lot of times it translates it as dominion over the world. Now, that's not dominion like I'm a lord and you're my servants and, you know, you, you're peons. But it's dominion as in, like, the way God serves the world, right? They were supposed to be God's influencers, God's like image to this earth. And so what most theologians, almost every single theologian from every spectrum across the world, when they look at this, they would say, you know, it's very clear. Adam and Eve were supposed to be gardeners. They were farmers, if you will, in some sense of taking care of the animals. They were, they owned, they were given the farm, if you will, and told to take care of it and to, to bless it, to make other things thrive. Dominion in the sense not as a king, but dominion like a teacher who gives their life to their students so that they can live and have the fullness of who they are. And I think about if you deny the world's good, none of that matters. You think about some of the things that you and I get on the news all the time and you see the world and different changes that our world's experiencing. As Christians, we care, right? We care about that. If Gnosticism had won the day or it wasn't a big deal, we wouldn't care about that. We'd go, what do do? I went to the wilds. You guys know the wilds? Love the wilds, right? The wilds is great. So you get to go on a safari. If you don't know it, um, people across the, the world we have in Ohio the weirdest thing ever. You go out in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, and our zoo has this land, and there's like a safari that you go on. And you get on like a school bus, a renovated school bus, and go and you just drive through and see all sorts of like, you know, you see rhinoceros, you see giraffes, you see all sorts of things, and you go around and see all these things. And it's quite amazing, but I was blown away when our tour guide told us about the place, because the history of the place was they didn't just buy some big open grassy fields and lakes and things like that. The history of that place is it was a strip mine. And it was destroyed, right? And when you strip mine, they get everything down to that bare rock. And, and the ruling and our, our way our, our United States government works is that when you leave that place, if the strip mining company leaves, they have to put two inches of soil and seed it. And so when you go there, it looks nice. It looks like, oh, this is great. This is awesome land. But it is thin deep. 
And in fact, there's a part you can go and they always tell you that they, they planted trees and they saw like which trees could grow and pretty much all of them are dead except two, right? And it's because two inches of soil and then solid rock underneath. And there's no way for anything to really grow. And so our zoo keeps track of it and has all these animals that go on it. It's a wonderful thing. But I remember thinking to myself, man, there's a part of me that hurts from seeing this with my own eyes. The illusion of how we treated this world just to get whatever we did, but we did it in such a way that even though it looks nice on the surface, nothing can grow except some grass. Right? And I don't know about you, but there was a part of me that just kind of broke my heart in that. And I think that part of broke my heart is that idea that fundamentally it makes sense to me that we are like those gardeners, right? We're supposed to care for this world in such a way. Yes, we're supposed to use it. God gave it to us for goodness and all these things, but at the same time, we're not to use it in such a way that it's used and abused at any whim for any purpose. The second thing I would point out to you is Marcionism was the second big thing that they were dealing with. And remember what Marcion said is, Jesus wasn't Jewish. Take out the Jewishness of, of Jesus, right? So he wasn't born. Uh, first of all, he just showed up on the earth one day, right? And took out all the scripture references. And in fact, they only had one gospel. Marcion said, hey, there's only one gospel. It means anything. It's the book of Luke. And then he actually took Luke and took all the stuff out of Luke that had any mention to Judaism whatsoever. And he said, this is the gospel of what it is to follow Jesus. Now just think about that for a minute. Christians, we got to own up to this. We have had a really bad track record of anti-Semitism. The Christian family has done horrible things. The people in the name of Jesus have done horrible things. And I would make a point to you, it would have been way worse if we denied that Jesus was Jewish. If the Old Testament wasn't connected to the New, the atrocities that had occurred I would multiply them. I don't think there's any, anybody who would argue that. It would have been so worse because the ancient world hated the Jews. And the simple truth is when Christianity was spread to the Gentiles, part of what got kind of into the lifeblood of the church, if you want, into the lifeblood of Christians, was some of that hatred towards Jews. And the simple truth is Jesus called us to love even our enemies. He himself was betrayed by one of his disciples, yet loved them all those times all that time when they were together. And even though we may look at Jewish people and would say, hey, why do you deny Jesus as the Christ? We're called to love. And it can't be part of the church. And we can't accept it. And the simple truth is, if we had been, if Marcion had won the day or been allowed to be there, we would be totally okay with it. In a way that we're not. See, being holy matters. Right belief leads to really things that are godlike. Sometimes there are things that we believe, or not we believe, but that can be pushed upon us, that if we accept them, and we deny those very critical things of Jesus and what the gospel has been handed to us, it comes out in some really bad ways. Just two examples of the destruction of this world at our just whim, and the idea that we didn't care for Jewish people at all was at stake all the way back in 180. And the church stood up and said something about it. Let us pray. Lord, as we're here today, we thank you so much for your scripture. And that, God, you called us to be holy as you are holy. And so, God, as we're here today, we know that that is not only the rightness of head and heart, it's the rightness of actions. 
God, we want more than anything else to be like you because we've tasted of your goodness. And so God, in all those ways that we fail, in all those ways that we have stubborn hearts, in all those ways that we don't even understand that we're doing the wrong thing, in all those things, forgive us. And continue to lead us. Continue to bring us and change us, transform us into being the very people of God that not only are holy in the sense of being set apart, not only holy in being Christ-likeness to this world, not only holy in being ambassadors to the rest of this world for its transformation to you, but God, that we could be truly children of the living God, a blessing to this world. May praise come from those who we encounter. Praise to your name from their lips. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.